This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lone Star Ranger by Zane Gray Chapter 22 Again inaction and suspense dragged at Duane's spirit. Like a leashed hound with a keen scent in his face, Duane wanted to leap forth when he was bound. He almost fretted. Something called to him over the bold, wild brow of Mount Ord. But while Fletcher stayed in Ord waiting for Nell and Poggin, or for orders, Duane knew his game was again a waiting one. But one day there were signs of the long quiet of Ord being broken. A messenger strange to Duane rode in on a secret mission that had to do with Fletcher. When he went away, Fletcher became addicted to thoughtful moods and lonely walks. He seldom drank, and this in itself was a striking contrast to former behavior. The messenger came again. Whatever communication he brought, it had a remarkable effect upon the outlaw. Duane was present in the tavern when the fellow arrived, saw the few words whispered, but did not hear them. Fletcher turned white with anger, or fear, perhaps both, and he cursed like a madman. The messenger, a lean, dark-faced, hard-riding fellow, reminding Duane of the cowboy Guthrie, left the tavern without even a drink and rode away off to the west. This west mystified and fascinated Duane as much as the south beyond Mount Ord. Where were Nell and Poggin? Apparently they were not at present with the leader on the mountain. After the messenger left, Fletcher grew silent and surly. He had presented a variety of moods to Duane's observation, and this latest one was provocative of thought. Fletcher was dangerous. It became clear now that the other outlaws of the camp feared him, kept out of his way. Duane let him alone, yet closely watched him. Perhaps an hour after the messenger had left, not longer, Fletcher manifestly arrived at some decision, and he called for his horse. Then he went to his shack and returned. To Duane the outlaw looked in shape both to ride and to fight. He gave orders for the men in camp to keep close until he returned. Then he mounted. "'Come here, Dodge,' he called. Duane went up and laid a hand on the pommel of the saddle. Fletcher walked his horse, with Duane beside him, till they reached the log bridge, when they halted. "'Dodge, I'm in bad with Nell,' he said, "'and it appears I'm the cause of friction between Nell and Poggy.' Nell never had any use for me, but Poggy's been square, if not friendly. The boss has a big deal on, and here it's been held up because of this scrap. He's waiting over there on the mountain to give orders to Nell or Poggy, and neither one's showing up. I've got to stand in the breach, and I ain't enjoying the prospects. What's the trouble about, Jim? asked Duane. "'Reckon it's a little about you, Dodge,' said Fletcher, dryly. "'Nell hadn't any use for you that day. "'He ain't got no use for a man unless he can rule him. "'Some of the boys here have blabbed before I edged in with my say, "'and there's hell to pay. 
Nell claims to know something about you that'll make both the boss and Poggy sick when he springs it. But he's keeping quiet. Hard man to figure, that Nell. Reckon you better go back to Bradford for a day or so, then camp out near here till I come back. Why? Well, because there ain't any use for you to get in bad, too. The gang will ride over here any day. If they're friendly, I'll light a fire on the hill there, say, three nights from tonight. If you don't see it that night, you hit the trail. I'll do what I can. Jim Fletcher sticks to his pals. So long, Dodge. Then he rode away. He left Duane in a quandary. This news was black. Things had been working out so well. Here was a setback. At the moment Duane did not know which way to turn, but certainly he had no idea of going back to Bradford. Friction between the two great lieutenants of Cheseldine open hostility between one of them and another of the chief's right-hand men. Among outlaws that sort of thing was deadly serious. Generally such matters were settled with guns. Duane gathered encouragement even from disaster. Perhaps the disintegration of Cheseldine's great band had already begun. But what did Nell know? Duane did not circle around the idea with doubts and hopes. If Nell knew anything, it was that this stranger in Ord, this new partner of Fletcher's, was no less than Buck Duane. Well, it was about time, thought Duane, that he made use of his name if it were to help him at all. That name had been McNelly's hope. He had anchored all his scheme to Duane's fame. Duane was tempted to ride off after Fletcher and stay with him. This, however, would hardly be fair to an outlaw who had been fair to him. Duane concluded to await developments, and when the gang rode in to Ord, probably from their various hiding-places, he would be there ready to be denounced by Nell. Duane could not see any other culmination of this series of events than a meeting between Nell and himself. If that terminated fatally for Nell, there was all probability of Duane's being in no worse situation than he was now. If Poggin took up the quarrel, here Duane accused himself again, tried in vain to revolt from a judgment that he was only reasoning out excuses to meet these outlaws. Meanwhile, instead of waiting, why not hunt up Cheseldine in his mountain retreat? The thought no sooner struck Duane than he was hurrying for his horse. He left Ord ostensibly toward Bradford, but once out of sight he turned off the road, circled through the brush, and several miles south of town he struck a narrow grass-grown trail that Fletcher had told him led to Cheseldine's camp. The horse tracks along this trail were not less than a week old, and very likely much more. It wound between low brush-covered foothills, through arroyos and gullies lined with mesquite, cottonwood, and scrub oak. In an hour Duane struck the slope of Mount Ord, and as he climbed he got a view of the rolling, black-spotted country, partly desert, partly fertile, with long, bright lines of dry stream-beds winding away to grow dim in the distance. He got among broken rocks and cliffs, and here the open, downward-rolling land disappeared, and he was hard put to it to find the trail. He lost it repeatedly and made slow progress. Finally he climbed into a region of all rock benches, 
rough here, smooth there, with only an occasional scratch of iron horseshoe to guide him. Many times he had to go ahead and then work to right or left until he found his way again. It was slow work. It took all day, and night found him halfway up the mountain. He halted at a little side canyon with grass and water, and here he made camp. The night was clear and cool at that height, with a dark blue sky and a streak of stars blinking across. With this day of action behind him he felt better satisfied than he had been for some time. Here, on this venture, he was answering to a call that had so often directed his movements, perhaps his life, and it was one that logic or intelligence could take little stock of. And on this night, lonely like the ones he used to spend in the Nusi's Gorge, and memorable of them because of a likeness to that old hiding-place, he felt the pressing return of old haunting things, the past so long ago, wild flights, dead faces, and the places of these were taken by one quiveringly alive, white, tragic, with its dark intent speaking eyes, Ray Longstreth's. That last memory he yielded to until he slept. In the morning, satisfied that he had left still fewer tracks than he had followed up this trail, he led his horse up to the head of the canyon, there a narrow crack in low cliffs, and with branches of cedar fenced him in. Then he went back and took up the trail on foot. Without the horse he made better time and climbed through deep clefts, wide canyons, over ridges, up shelving slopes, along precipices, a long, hard climb, till he reached what he concluded was a divide. Going down was easier, though the farther he followed this dim and winding trail, the wider the broken battlements of rock. Above him he saw the black fringe of pinyon and pine, and above that the bold peak, bare, yellow, like a desert butte. Once, through a wide gateway between great escarpments, he saw the lower country beyond the range, and beyond this, vast and clear as it lay in his sight, was the great river that made the big bend. He went down and down, wondering how a horse could follow that broken trail, believing there must be another, better one somewhere into Cheseldine's hiding place. He rounded a jutting corner where view had been shut off, and presently came out upon the rim of a high wall. Beneath, like a green gulf seen through blue haze, lay an amphitheatre walled in on the two sides he could see. It lay perhaps a thousand feet below him, and, plain as all the other features of that wild environment, there shone out a big red stone or adobe cabin, white water shining away between great borders, and horses and cattle dotting the levels. It was a peaceful, beautiful scene. Duane could not help grinding his teeth at the thought of rustlers living there in quiet and ease. Duane worked halfway down to the level, and, well hidden in her niche, he settled himself to watch both trail and valley. He made note of the position of the sun and saw that if anything developed, or he decided to descend any farther, there was small likelihood of his getting back to his camp before dark. To try that after nightfall, he imagined, would be vain effort. Then he bent his keen eyes downward. The cabin appeared to be a crude structure. 
Though large in size, it had of course been built by outlaws. There was no garden, no cultivated field, no corral. Excepting for the rude pile of stones and logs plastered together with mud, the valley was as wild, probably, as on the day of discovery. Duane seemed to have been watching for a long time before he saw any sign of man, and this one apparently went to the stream for water and returned to the cabin. The sun went down behind the wall, and shadows were born in the darker places of the valley. Duane began to want to get closer to that cabin. What had he taken this arduous climb for? He held back, however, trying to evolve further plans. While he was pondering, the shadows quickly gathered and darkened. If he was to go back to camp, he must set out at once. Still he lingered. And suddenly his wide roving eye caught sight of two horsemen riding up the valley. They must have entered at a point below, round the huge abutment of rock, beyond Duane's range of sight. Their horses were tired and stopped at the stream for a long drink. Duane left his perch, took to the steep trail, and descended as fast as he could without making noise. It did not take him long to reach the valley floor. It was almost level, with deep grass, and here and there clumps of bushes. Twilight was already thick down there. Duane marked the location of the trail, and then began to slip like a shadow through the grass, and from bush to bush. He saw a bright light before he made out the dark outline of the cabin. Then he heard voices, a merry whistle, a coarse song, and the clink of iron cooking utensils. He smelled fragrant wood smoke. He saw moving dark figures cross the light. Evidently there was a wide door, or else the fire was out in the open. Duane swerved to the left, out of direct line with the light, and thus was able to see better. Then he advanced noiselessly but swiftly toward the back of the house. There were trees close to the wall. He would make no noise, and he could scarcely be seen, if only there was no watchdog. But all his outlaw days he had taken risk with only his useless life at stake. Now, with that changed, he advanced stealthy and bold as an Indian. He reached the cover of the trees, knew he was hidden in their shadows, for at few paces distance he had been able to see only their tops. From there he slipped up to the house and felt along the wall with his hands. He came to a little window where light shone through. He peeped in. He saw a room shrouded in shadows, a lamp turned low, a table, chairs. He saw an open door, with bright flare beyond, but could not see the fire. Voices came in distinctly. Without hesitation, Duane stole farther along, all the way to the end of the cabin. Peering round, he saw only the flare of light on bare ground. Retracing his cautious steps, he paused at the crack again, saw that no man was in the room, and then he went on round that end of the cabin. Fortune favored him. There were bushes, an old shed, a woodpile, all the cover he needed at that corner. He did not even need to crawl. Before he peered between the rough corner of wall and the brush growing close to it, Duane paused a moment. This excitement was different from that he had always felt when pursued. It had no bitterness, no pain, no dread. 
There was as much danger here, perhaps more, yet it was not the same. Then he looked. He saw a bright fire, a red-faced man bending over it, whistling, while he handled a steaming pot. Over him was a roofed shed built against the wall, with two open sides and two supporting posts. Duane's second glance, not so blinded by the sudden bright light, made out other men, three in the shadow, two in the flare, but with backs to him. "'It's a smoother trail by long odds, but ain't so short as this one right over the mountain,' one outlaw was saying. "'What's eatin' you, Panhandle?' ejaculated another. "'Blossom and me rode from faraway springs, where Poggin is with some of the gang.' "'Excuse me, Phil. Sure I didn't see you come in, and Bolt never said nothin'. "'It took you a while to get here, but I guess that's just as well,' spoke up a smooth, suave voice with a ring in it. Longstreth's voice. Cheseldine's voice. Here they were, Cheseldine, Phil Nell, Blossom Kane, Panhandle Smith, Bolt, how well Duane remembered the names, all here, the big men of Cheseldine's gang, except the biggest, Poggin. Duane had hold them, and his sensations of the moment deadened sight and sound of what was before him. He sank down, controlled himself, silenced a mounting exultation. Then from a less strained position he peered forth again. The outlaws were waiting for supper. Their conversation might have been that of cowboys in camp, ranchers at a round-up. Duane listened with eager ears, waiting for the business talk that he felt would come. All the time he watched with the eyes of a wolf upon its quarry. Blossom Kane was the lean-limbed messenger who had so angered Fletcher. Bolt was a giant in stature, dark, bearded, silent. Panhandle Smith was the red-faced cooked, merry, profane, a short, bow-legged man resembling many rustlers Duane had known, particularly Luke Stevens. And Nell, who sat there tall, slim, like a boy in build, like a boy in years, with its pale, smooth, expressionless face and his cold gray eyes. And Longstreth, who leaned against the wall, handsome, with his dark face and beard like an aristocrat, resembling many a rich Louisiana planter Duane had met. The sixth man sat so much in the shadow that he could not be plainly discerned, and, though addressed, his name was not mentioned. Panhandle Smith carried pots and pans into the cabin, and cheerfully called out, "'If you gents are hungry for grub, don't look for me to feed you with a spoon.' The outlaws piled inside, made a great bustle and clatter as they sat to their meal. Like hungry men, they talked little. Duane waited there a while, then guardedly got up and crept round to the other side of the cabin. After he became used to the dark again, he ventured to steal along the wall to the window and peeped in. The outlaws were in the first room and could not be seen. Duane waited. The moments dragged endlessly. His heart pounded. Longstreth entered, turned up the light, and taking a box of cigars from the table, he carried it out. "'Here, you fellows, go outside and smoke,' he said. "'Nell, come on in now. Let's get it over.' He returned, sat down, and lighted a cigar for himself. 
he put his booted feet on the table. Duane saw that the room was comfortably, even luxuriously furnished. There must have been a good trail, he thought, else how could all that stuff have been packed in there? Most assuredly it could not have come over the trail he had traveled. Presently he heard the men go outside, and their voices became indistinct. Then Nell came in and seated himself without any of his chief's ease. He seemed preoccupied, and as always, cold. "'What's wrong, Nell? Why didn't you get here sooner?' queried Longstreth. "'Poggin, damn him! We're on the outs again.' "'What for?' "'Oh, he needn't have got sore. He's breaking a new hoss over at Faraway, and you know him where a hoss is concerned. That kept him, I reckon, more than anything.' "'What else? Get it out of your system so we can go on to the new job.' Well, it begins back a ways. I don't know how long ago. Weeks. A stranger rode into Ord and got down easy-like as if he owned the place. He seemed familiar to me. But I wasn't sure. We looked him over, and I left, trying to place him in my mind. What did he look like? Rangy, powerful man, white hair over his temples, Still hard face, eyes like knives. The way he packed his guns, the way he walked and stood and swung his right hand showed me what he was. You can't fool me on the gun sharp. And he had a grand horse, a big black. I've met your man, said Longstreth. No, exclaimed Nell. It was wonderful to hear surprise expressed by this man who did not in the least show it in his strange physiognomy. Nell laughed a short, grim, hollow laugh. Boss, this here big gent drifts into Ord again and makes up to Jim Fletcher. Jim, you know, is easy led. He likes men. And when a posse come along trailing a blind lead, hunting the wrong way for the man who held up number six, why, Jim... He up and takes this stranger to be the fly road agent and cottons to him. Got money out of him, sure. And that's what stumps me more. What's this man's game? I happen to know, boss, that he couldn't have held up number six. How do you know? demanded Longstreth. Because I did the job myself. A dark and stormy passion clouded the chief's face. Damn you, Nell! You're incorrigible. You're unreliable. Another break like that queers you with me. Did you tell Poggin? Yes. That's one reason we fell out. He raved. I thought he was going to kill me. Why did you tackle such a risky job without help or plan? It offered, that's all. And it was easy. But it was a mistake. I got the country and the railroad hollering for nothing. I just couldn't help it. You know what idleness means to one of us. You know also that this very life breeds fatality. It's wrong, that's why. I was born a good parents, and I know what's right. We're wrong, and we can't beat the end, that's all. And for my part, I don't care a damn when that comes. Fine, wise talk from you, Nell said Longstreth scornfully. Go on with your story. As I said, Jim cottons to the pretender, and they get chummy. 
They're together all the time. You can gamble Jim told all he knew, and then some. A little liquor loosens his tongue. Several of the boys rode over from Ord, and one of them went to Poggin and says, Jim Fletcher has a new man for the gang. Poggin, you know, he's always ready for any new man. He says if one doesn't turn out good, he can be shut off easy. He rather liked the way this new part of Jim's was boosted. Jim and Poggins always hit it up together. So, until I got on the deal, Jim's pard was already in the gang, without Poggin or you ever seeing him. Then I got to figuring hard. Just where had I seen that chap? As it turned out, I never had seen him, which accounts for my being doubtful. I'd never forget any man I'd seen. I dug up a lot of old papers from my kit and went over them letters, pictures, clippings, and all that. I guess I had a pretty good notion what I was looking for and who I wanted to make sure of. At last I found it. And I knew my man. But I didn't spring it on Poggin. Oh, no. I want to have some fun with him when the time comes. He'll be wilder than a trapped wolf. I sent Blossom over to Ord to get word from Jim, and when he verified all this talk, I sent Blossom again with a message calculated to make Jim hump. Poggin got sore, said he'd wait for Jim, and I could come over here to see you about the new job. He'd meet me in Ord. Nell had spoken hurriedly and low, now and then with passion. His pale eyes glinted like fire in ice, and now his voice fell to a whisper. "'Who do you think Fletcher's new man is?' "'Who?' demanded Longstreth. "'Buck Duane!' Down came Longstreth's boots with a crash, then his body grew rigid. "'That nooses outlaw! That two-shot ace-of-spades gun-thrower who killed Bland, uh, Alloway, and Hardin!' Nell whispered this last name with more feeling than the apparent circumstance demanded. "'Yes, and Hardin, the best one of the Rimrock fellows, Buck Duane!' Longstreth was so ghastly white now that his black moustache seemed outlined against chalk. He eyed his grim lieutenant. They understood each other without more words. It was enough that Buck Duane was there in the Big Bend. Longstreth rose presently and reached for a flask, from which he drank, then offered it to Nell. He waved it aside. Nell, began the chief, slowly, as he wiped his lips, I gathered you had some grudge against this Buck Duane. Yes. Well, don't be a fool now, and do what Poggin or almost any of your men would. Don't meet this Buck Duane. I've reason to believe he's a Texas Ranger now. The hell you say! exclaimed Nell. Yes, go to Ord and give Jim Fletcher a hunch. He'll get Poggin, and they'll fix even Buck Duane. All right, I'll do my best. But if I run into Duane, don't run into him. Longstreth's voice fairly rang with the force of its passion and command. He wiped his face, drank again from the flask, sat down, resumed his smoking, and, drawing a paper from his vest pocket, he began to study it. "'Well, I'm glad that's settled,' 
he said, evidently referring to the Duane matter. Now for the new job. This is October the 18th. On or before the 25th there will be a shipment of gold reach the rancher's bank of Val Verde. After you return to Ord, give Poggin these orders. Keep the gang quiet. You, Poggin, Kane, Fletcher, Panhandle Smith, and Bolt to be in on the secret and the job. Nobody else. You leave Ord on the 23rd, right across country by the trail till you get within sight of Mercer. It's a hundred miles from Bradford to Valverde, about the same from Ord. Time your travel to get you near Valverde on the morning of the 26th. You won't have to more than trot your horses. At two o'clock in the afternoon, sharp, ride into town and up to the rancher's bank. Valverde's a pretty big town. Never been any hold-ups there. Town feels safe. Make it a clean, fast, daylight job. That's all. Have you got the details? Nell did not even ask for the dates again. Suppose Paulgan or me might be detained, he asked. Longstreth bent a dark glance upon his lieutenant. You never can tell what'll come off, continued Nell. I'll do my best. The minute you see Paulgan, you tell him. A job on hand steadies him. And I say again, look to it that nothing happens. Either you or Poggin carry the job through, but I want both of you in it. Break for the hills, and when you get up in the rocks where you can hide your tracks, head for Mount Ord. When all's quiet again, I'll join you here. That's all. Call in the boys. Like a swift shadow and as noiseless, Duane stole across the level toward the dark wall of rock. Every nerve was a strung wire. For a little while his mind was cluttered and clogged with whirling thoughts, from which, like a flashing scroll, unrolled the long, baffling order of action. The game was now in his hands. He must cross Mount Ord at night. The feat was improbable, but it might be done. He must ride into Bradford, forty miles from the foothills, before eight o'clock next morning. He must telegraph McNelly to be in Valverde on the twenty-fifth. He must ride back to Ord to intercept Nell, face him, be denounced, kill him, and while the iron was hot, strike hard to win Poggins's half-won interest as he had wholly won Fletcher's. Failing that last, he must let the outlaws alone to bide their time in Ord, to be free to ride on to their new job in Valverde. In the meantime, he must plan to arrest Longstreth. It was a magnificent outline, incredible, alluring, unfathomable in its nameless certainty. He felt like fate. He seemed to be the iron consequences falling upon these doomed outlaws. Under the wall the shadows were black, only the tips of trees and crags showing, yet he went straight to the trail. It was merely a grayness between borders of black. He climbed and never stopped. It did not seem steep. His feet might have had eyes. He surmounted the wall, and looking down into the ebony gulf pierced by one point of light, he lifted a menacing arm and shook it. Then he strode on, and did not falter till he reached the huge shelving cliffs. Here he lost the trail. There was none, but he remembered the shapes, the points, the notches of rock above. 
before he reached the ruins of splintered ramparts and jumbles of broken walls the moon topped the eastern slope of the mountain and the mystifying blackness he had dreaded changed to magic silver light it seemed as light as day only soft mellow and the air held a transparent sheen he ran up the bare ridges and down the smooth slopes and like a goat jumped from rock to rock in this light he knew his way and lost no time looking for a trail he crossed the divide and then had all downhill before him swiftly he descended almost always sure of his memory of the landmarks he did not remember having studied them in the ascent yet here they were even in the changed light familiar to his sight what he had once seen was pictured on his mind and true as a deer striking for home he reached the canyon where he had left his horse bullet was quickly and easily found duane threw on the saddle and pack cinched them tight and resumed his descent the worst was now to come bare downward steps in rock sliding weathered slopes narrow black gullies a thousand openings in a maze of broken stone these duane had to descend in fast time leading a giant of a horse bullet cracked the loose fragments sent them rolling slid on the scaly slopes plunged down the steps followed like a faithful dog at duane's heels hours passed as moments duane was equal to his great opportunity but he could not quell that self in him which reached back over the lapse of lonely searing years and found the boy in him he who had been worse than dead was now grasping at the skirts of life which meant victory honor happiness duane knew he was not just right and in part of his mind small wonder that he was not insane he thought he tramped on downward his marvelous faculty for covering rough ground and holding to the true course never before even in flight so keen and acute yet all the time a spirit was keeping step with him thought of ray longstreth as he had left her made him weak but now with the game cleared to its end with the trap to spring with success strangely haunting him duane could not dispel memory of her he saw her white face with its sweet sad lips and the dark eyes so tender and tragic and time and distance and risk and toil were nothing the moon sloped to the west shadows of trees and crags now crossed to the other side of him the stars dimmed then he was out of the rocks with the dim trail pale at his feet mounting bullet he made short work of the long slope in the foothills and the rolling land leading down to ord the little outlaw camp with its shacks and cabins and row of houses lay silent and dark under the paling moon duane passed by on the lower trail headed into the road and put bullet to a gallop he watched the dying moon the waning stars and the east he had time to spare so he saved the horse Nell would be leaving the rendezvous about the time Duane turned back toward Ord. Between noon and sunset they would meet. The night wore on. The moon sank behind low mountains in the west. The stars brightened for a while, then faded. Gray gloom enveloped the world, thickened, lay like smoke over the road. Then shade by shade it lightened, 
until through the transparent obscurity shone a dim light. Duane reached Bradford before dawn. He dismounted some distance from the tracks, tied his horse, and then crossed over to the station. He heard the clicking of the telegraph instrument, and it thrilled him. An operator sat inside, reading. When Duane tapped on the window, he looked up with startled glance, then went swiftly to unlock the door. "'Hello. Give me paper and pencil, quick,' whispered Duane. With trembling hands the operator complied. Duane wrote out the message he had carefully composed. "'Send this. Repeat it to make sure. Then keep mum. I'll see you again. Good-bye.' The operator stared, but did not speak a word. Duane left as stealthily and swiftly as he had come. He walked his horse a couple miles back on the road, and then rested him till break of day. The east began to redden. Duane turned grimly in the direction of Ord. When Duane swung into the wide, grassy square on the outskirts of Ord, he saw a bunch of saddled horses hitched in front of the tavern. He knew what that meant. Luck still favored him, if it would only hold. But he could ask no more. The rest was a matter of how greatly he could make his power felt. An open conflict against odds lay in the balance. That would be fatal to him, and to avoid it he had to trust to his name and a presence he must make terrible. He knew outlaws. He knew what qualities held them. He knew what to exaggerate. There was not an outlaw in sight. The dusty horses had covered distance that morning. As Duane dismounted, he heard loud, angry voices inside the tavern. He removed coat and vest, hung them over the pommel. He packed two guns, one belted high on the left hip, the other swinging low on the right side. He neither looked nor listened, but boldly pushed the door and stepped inside. The big room was full of men, and every face pivoted toward him. Nell's pale face flashed into Duane's swift sight, then Bolt's, then Blossom Cane's, then Panhandle Smith's, then Fletcher's, then others that were familiar, and last that of Poggin. Though Duane had never seen Poggin or heard him described, he knew him, for he saw a face that was a record of great and evil deeds. There was absolute silence. The outlaws were lined back of a long table upon which were papers, stacks of silver coin, a bundle of bills, and a huge gold-mounted gun. "'Are you gents looking for me?' asked Duane. He gave his voice all the ringing force and power of which he was capable, and he stepped back free of anything with the outlaws all before him. Nell stood quivering, but his face might have been a mask. The other outlaws looked from him to Duane. Jim Fletcher flung up his hands. "'My God, Dodge, what did you bust in here for?' he said plaintively, and slowly stepped forward. His action was that of a man true to himself. He meant he had been sponsor for Duane, and now he would stand by him. "'Back, Fletcher,' called Duane and his voice made the outlaw jump. "'Hold on, Dodge, and you all, everybody,' said Fletcher. "'Let me talk, seeing I'm in wrong here.' His persuasions did not ease the strain. "'Go ahead, talk,' said Poggin. Fletcher turned to Duane. 
pard i'm taking it all myself that you meet enemies here when i swore you'd meet friends it's my fault i'll stand by you if you let me no jim replied Twain. but what did you come here fur without the signal burst out fletcher in distress he saw nothing but catastrophe in this meeting jim i ain't pressing my company none but when i'm wanted bad Fletcher stopped him with a raised hand. Then he turned to Poggin with a rude dignity. Poggy, he's my part, and he's riled. I, I never told him a word that'd make him sore. I only said Nell hadn't no more use for him than for me. Now, what you say goes in this gang. I never failed you in my life. Here's my part. I vouch for him. Will you stand for me? There's going to be hell if you don't, and us with a big job on hand. While Fletcher toiled over his slow, earnest persuasion, Duane had his gaze riveted upon Poggin. There was something leonine about Poggin. He was tawny. He blazed. He seemed beautiful as fire was beautiful. But looked at closer with glance seeing the physical man instead of that thing which shone from him he was of perfect build with muscles that swelled and rippled bulging his clothes with a magnificent head and face of the cruel fierce tawny-eyed jaguar looking at this strange poggin instinctively divining his abnormal and hideous power duane had for the first time in his life the inward quaking fear of a man it was like a cold-tongued bell ringing within him and numbing his heart. The old instinctive firing of blood followed, but did not drive away that fear. He knew. He felt something here deeper than thought could go. And he hated Poggin. That individual had been considering Fletcher's appeal. "'Jim, I ante up,' he said. And if Phil doesn't raise us out with a big hand, why, he'll get called, and your pard can set in the game. Every eye shifted to Nell. He was dead white. He laughed, and anyone hearing that laugh would have realized his intense anger, equally with an assurance that made him master of the situation. Paulgun, you're a gambler, you are, the ace-high, straight-flush hand of the big bend he said with stinging scorn i'll bet you my roll to a greaser peso that i can deal you a hand you'd be afraid to play phil you're talking wild growled poggin with both advice and menace in his tone if there's anything you hate it's a man who pretends to be something else when he's not that's so poggin nodded in slow gathering wrath well jim's new part this man dodge he's not who he seems oh ho he's a hell of a lot different but i know him and when i spring his name on you poggin you'll freeze to your gizzard do you get me you'll freeze and your hand'll be stiff when it ought to be lightning all because you'll realize you've been standing there five minutes five minutes alive before him if not hate 
then assuredly great passion toward Poggin manifested itself in Nell's scornful fiery address, in the shaking hand he thrust before Poggin's face. In the ensuing silent pause Nell's panting could be plainly heard. The other men were pale, watchful, cautiously edging either way to the wall, leaving the principals and Duane in the center of the room. "'Spring his name, then, you!' said Poggin violently, with a curse. Strangely, Nell did not even look at the man he was about to denounce. He leaned toward Poggin, his hands, his body, his long head all somewhat expressive of what his face disguised. "'Buck Duane!' he yelled suddenly. The name did not make any great difference in Poggin, but Nell's passionate, swift utterance carried the suggestion that the name ought to bring Poggin to quick action. It was possible, too, that Nell's manner, the import of his denunciation, the meaning back of all his passion, held Poggin bound more than the surprise. For the outlaw certainly was surprised, perhaps staggered at the idea that he, Poggin, had been about to stand sponsor with Fletcher for a famous outlaw hated and feared by all outlaws. Nell waited a long moment, and then his face broke its cold immobility in an extraordinary expression of devilish glee. He had hounded the great Poggin into something that gave him vicious, monstrous joy. "'Buck Duane! Yes!' he broke out hotly. "'The Noosey's gunman! That two-shot ace of spades lone wolf! You and I, we've heard a thousand times of him, talked about him often.' and here he in front of you. Poggin, you were back in Fletcher's new pard, Buck Duane, and he'd fooled you both but for me. But I know him, and I know why he drifted in here, to flash a gun on Cheseldine, on you, on me. Bah! Don't tell me he wanted to join the gang. You know a gunman, you're one yourself. Don't you always want to kill another man?' don't you always want to meet a real man, not a four-flush? It's the madness of the gunman, and I know it. Well, Duane faced you, called you, and when I sprung his name, what ought you have done? What would the boss, anybody, have expected of Poggin? Did you throw your gun, swift, like you have so often? No, you froze. And why? Because here's a man with the kind of nerve you'd love to have because he's great, beating us here alone, because you know he's a wonder with a gun and you love life, because you and I and every damn man here had to take his front, each to himself. If we all drew, we'd kill him, sure. But who's going to lead? Who was going to be first? Who was going to make him draw? Not you, Poggin. You'd leave that for a lesser man, me who've lived to see you a coward. It comes once to every gunman. You've met your match in Buck Duane, and by God, I'm glad. Here's once I show you up. The hoarse, taunting voice failed. Nell stepped back from the comrade he hated. He was wet, shaking, haggard, but magnificent. Buck Duane, do you remember Hardin? he asked in scarcely audible voice. "'Yes,' replied Duane, and a flash of insight made clear Nell's attitude. "'You met him, forced him to draw, killed him?' "'Yes.' 
Hardin was the best pard I ever had. His teeth clicked together tight, and his lips set in a thin line. The room grew still. Even breathing ceased. The time for words had passed. In that long moment of suspense, Nell's body gradually stiffened, and at last the quivering ceased. He crouched. His eyes had a soul-piercing fire. Duane watched them. He waited. He caught the thought, the breaking of Nell's muscle-bound rigidity. Then he drew. Through the smoke of his gun he saw two red spurts of flame. Nell's bullets thudded into the ceiling. He fell with a scream like a wild thing in agony. Duane did not see Nell die. He watched Poggin. And Poggin, like a stricken and astounded man, looked down upon his prostrate comrade. Fletcher ran at Duane with hands aloft. "'Hit the trail, you liar! You'll have to kill me!' he yelled. With hands still up, he shouldered and bodied Duane out of the room. Duane leaped on his horse, spurred, and plunged away. End of chapter.